Welcome back to Administrative Static with John Vecchioni and Mark Chenoweth. We are joined by our colleague, Senior Litigation Counsel Russ Ryan, here at the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Uh, and and despite uh, despite Russ's last name, in this uh, case, Murphy, Murphy, and Ganad, the SEC, you're, you're representing Ganad, not uh, not Murphy. Correct. Correct. <laughs> yes, we only represent one of the three petitioners. Yes. Uh, but uh, we uh, we just filed the uh, reply brief uh, uh, in the support of the petition for writ of certiorari here. Remind our our listeners what this uh, this case is about, Russ. So this is an SEC enforcement case uh, where three defendants were charged uh, with various violations, primarily failing to register as brokers with the SEC, which is a, a strict liability offense. Uh, one of the petitioners, not our client, was also charged with uh, a fraud violation based on uh, she allegedly used uh, incorrect zip codes while she was trading securities in order to allegedly to get retail priority in these municipal bond offerings that are the subject of the case. And um, what we're Primarily arguing is that the penalties are completely out of whack and they exceed any rational reading of the relevant penalty statutes that the SEC uses. So the first issue you talk about in the reply is the uh, variation among individual words. Can you say more about that? Like what, what's the problem with, I mean, different defendants get different uh, judgments all the time. Why is it a particular problem in this context? Well, Congress has set the penalty amounts in the statute, in the relevant statutes. Um, for relevant purposes in this case, um, the strict liability offenses are capped at approximately $7,500 per, per violation. The problem is the statute does not say what each violation is. Now, in ordinary parlance, you would think, well, I failed to register as a broker that's one violation, my penalty should be $7,500. And many people who get charged with that offense have gotten exactly that as the penalty, $7,500. What the SEC convinced the court to do here is to say, well, they were unregistered for several years, so let's just count every new month that they were unregistered as a new violation. And so our client ended up with something like 30 30 times the statutory uh, maximum, his, his penalty was over $300,000, um, which is grotesquely disproportionate to what Congress intended in the statute and what similarly situated offenders have gotten in the past. And um, so we're, we're basically saying that's not an appropriate way to read the statute. You're essentially, if you can split up a violation into a million pieces, then the statutory caps are essentially meaningless. Well, and, and Congress isn't doing the work of setting the statutory penalty for a crime, or not a crime, a, a civil violation in this in this case. Correct. They've essentially delegated the legislative function of setting the penalty cap to unelected bureaucrats and unelected federal judges. Yeah. So uh, if if he had uh, committed, or let me let me back up. Uh, if, if he had registered as a as a broker, is that something that you renew annually? You don't re renew that monthly, do you? No, no. You, you do it once. Although many brokers, especially larger ones, 
do have annual filing obligations. They have to file certain types of annual reports and so forth. Um, so, but, why, so why does the government say that it did this with a monthly multiplier rather than an annual? I mean, at least an annual multiplier, you could see the argument. I'm not saying it's right, but it's more right than a monthly. Well, it's pretty obvious to me that the SEC didn't like the fact that these three people decided to to go to trial. Uh, had they settled, the other people in the case that settled to this charge got $7,500 penalties. The SEC, I think, was unhappy that they had to litigate. And so they were going to s- uh, send a message and say- Stick it to them. Yeah. You, you're going you're gonna to put us to the test? Well, now we're going to come up with some way. And what's really uh, infuriating about it is that the SEC and both the district court and the Ninth Circuit all said the same thing, which is common in these cases. The SEC says, well, we could have split it up even more. We could have said every day or we could have said every week, uh, you know, every transaction you engaged in over that three year period is a separate violation. And then you could have been we could have asked for a $10 million penalty. But aren't, uh, aren't we nice guys? Because we're yeah, only asking yeah, that, for $300,000. feigning magnanimity is yeah. what we call it. And how it. is yeah, that yeah. law? You know, <laughs> how is that law? It's, it's not. How do you know the cut of the law right. ahead of time to right. order your conduct? Throughout the most, the most frequently used words in the SEC's opposition brief were flexibility and discretion and facts and circumstances. Uh, basically code words for... Uh, we'll we'll do whatever we want, yeah. and there's the statute is is basically beside the point. The other thing you talk about in this brief is that the Ninth Circuit expanded who must register with the SEC as a broker. So it's not even clear that 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 there was a mandatory obligation for these folks to file as as brokers. Yeah, in fact, I think they had no reason to predict that someday the SEC was going to come along and say, you know, you guys should have been registered when you were doing what you were doing. Basically, they were buying and selling municipal bonds in their own brokerage accounts, which were held at SEC-registered brokerage firms. The reason the SEC and and the Ninth Circuit said they they needed to be registered was essentially an an unprecedented new test that said, uh, well, because uh, you got some of your trading capital from a third party and you shared the profits and losses with that third party when you traded in your account, that's enough to be a broker. And they're really taking an ultra-literal uh, uh, reading of the, the, the relevant statute, which is worded fairly broadly, but courts in the past have put reasonable parameters around it, and the Ninth Circuit just blew those away here. So, so under the SEC's reading, if I were to pool resources with my my dad or with my sister to to buy a municipal bond and trade it in my my Schwab account, then I would I would have to register as a broker I, if I if I did it enough or if I yeah I if think they were large enough. That's the point. I think, in fairness to the SEC, they'd say if you did it as sort of a regular ongoing business, yes, you would have to under this under this case, but. As far as I can tell, neither the SEC nor a court had ever really adopted that position before. Yeah, the SEC should think Ooh. about uh, maybe writing a rule that says <laughs> yeah, that if yeah. they want to, you know, if they want to go after that people for violating good. it. By the way, we we got a great brief from uh, Nick Morgan and his group, uh, Investor Choice Advocate Net 
Advocacy Network, yeah. I can. Yeah. Uh, on, on that point, yeah, an amicus brief, yep. And I'll just give a hat tip, too, to Andy Vollmer and his uh, lawyers at Sherman and Sterling, who put in a, an excellent brief on the penalty issue. Oh, terrific. Uh, yeah. That's that's great that they were able to do that. Uh, the, the other thing that you uh, focus on in the reply brief is that uh, the, the Ninth Circuit's per- permissive allowance of summary judgment abridged jury trial rights here. What, what's that about? Yeah. Um, in this case, first of all, I w- I'm looking for a case, by the way, where we can tee up cleanly the issue of whether um, summary judgment is appropriate in a case where the government is a prosecutor and it's just nominally civil, but it's in mm. fact for all practical purposes, it might as well be a criminal case. Right. So if they had gone after $10 million in penalties here, then under the government's theory, they can still just get summary judgment on that and no jury trial. Yes. Um, and here, there were many disputed factual issues. Uh, the respondents put in declarations, but the judge, the district court essentially just made credibility determinations on the papers. And then at the remedy stage, again, had to make certain factual findings, at least with respect to the higher penalty for the the petitioner who was charged with fraud. And again, no jury was involved. These All three of these petitioners asked for a jury trial, and both liability and the, the penalties were decided against them with no jury. And just for our listeners, summary judgment means there's no disputed facts. The judge isn't supposed to make any uh, judgments on who's more credible or not credible. It's only supposed to be when you have the facts and they're undisputed. And that's what a summary judgment is. And it's a question of law, application yeah. of law, and, as opposed to finding And facts. it's only in civil law and in criminal, you don't have that. Right. Yeah. But like, like I said earlier, this is quasi-criminal. Yeah. I'd like to get a case where that's cleanly set up that these are quasi-criminal cases, summary judgment and other like post-judgment uh, NOVs and all that. If if the defendant wins, the defendant wins, and that's the end of it. Well, one of the <clears> frustrating <throat> things to me about this this case, and again, we're talking about Murphy, Murphy, and Ganad v. SEC uh, on petition for writ of cert to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and our and our co-counsel here, counsel for petitioners uh, Murphy, is uh, Justin Share and Robert Nut uh, Knutz Knutz at uh, at Share Tremont uh, in New York. So uh, so a shout out to them, but but. Uh, uh, and Kara, Kara Rollins was on this uh, brief with you as well. Uh, but but I'm and we just have a minute left for us. But I, I, you did a great job in this case of taking there were so many issues wrong <laughs> with this case. And you've boiled it down to basically three now at the at the Supreme Court for the court to take a look at. Uh, but one of the problems that the Supreme Court typically likes cases that only have one problem or one issue. Yeah. And when you have so many different things that the agency is doing wrong, it's almost harder to appeal that. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm optimistic, and especially optimistic about the first issue. I do think it's a an issue of broad national significance that the the SEC gets like hundreds of penalties every year and they're just all over the place and only the Supreme Court can bring some discipline to this. And so um, we're actually on the conference for the 27th. So okay. we should know what's going to happen. Terrific. Well, well, stay tuned. Again, the case is Murphy Murphy and Gennad v. SEC. Uh, Russ Ryan, good luck. 
Thank you very much. And they're used to lots of mistakes from the Ninth Circuit. So. <laughs> <laughs>